absolutely. The whole point of literature to me is to step into someone else's shoes. I mean, that is something that I never had growing up, and I do value it now that it's happening more. You're listening to Good is in the Details. I'm Gwendolyn Dolsky. And I'm Rudy Salad. And this is the podcast where we learn what we didn't know we didn't know in the spirit of Socrates. And today's guest, we were introduced by a mutual friend, and I am very thankful for that. Her name is Mari Naomi, and she is a cartoonist. She's actually in season one, where I got a chance to interview her one-on-one. We talked about her book, Kiss and Tell. And this time, I knew that she had another book out, and I just couldn't wait to get in touch with her. This one is called Losing the Girl. And our conversation actually changed from talking about the book to the politics of banning books. So when we started out, I was excited to talk about her work, but the conversation evolved into a very hot topic today in what does it mean to have your book banned and losing the girl ended up on some banned book lists. I wanted to talk with Mari because first of all, the first time I met her, it was just, it was a lovely conversation and I genuinely enjoy her work. I think it's so charming and it makes me laugh out loud. It's an absolute pleasure to read. I was surprised that it ended up getting banned. And so we ended up talking about what was that like to get the notice that your book has been banned? And then how did that change the trajectory of your writing career and promoting the book? She gave a very interesting answer. uh, One that on a subsequent episode, when we talked to another banned book author, gave an opposite answer. And so it just goes to show you not all banned book authors are alike. Every single one of them have their different experiences. So I not didn't make total assumptions. I mean, my question was from the heart. Like I really wanted to know the answer as to, well, wait a minute, hold on. Is there really such a thing as bad advertising or having your name on a banned list? Is that really a bad thing? And her, you know, her response is different from somebody else. I'm not going to tell you what the response is. It's just a very interesting answer that, uh, it's, it's just kind of like, you know, do you, I write, right? I write under my own name and I write under, under a pen name. And there's this part of me is like, oh man, I wish I was banned. I think that would be great for sales or, oh man, I think that would be great to be like, you know, really hated by one segment of the population because then, then that would just lead to, you know, the name of my book or the name of this being put into the internet for forever. So for some people it works, some people it doesn't. And it's just, it's just very interesting. I'm very happy that we have one banned book author, and then we talk to another one very quickly thereafter just to hear about their different experiences. I know. And I'm really glad that that's where the conversation went because I'm glad for our listeners, because when we're talking about banned books, maybe there's this forgetfulness that there's an author behind that. Right. I don't you know. know I mean, think a about the and, author, right? And, 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 and every author writes a book for a reason. You got to think about, well, why did they write it? Who was their audience? How is their audience impacted? Who's going to be able to get a hold of the book? And these are two divergent authors. Like we have one that, that wrote for young adults. And in the, the next episode, we talk about one that wrote book for toddlers. Young adults have more access to get their hands on books without their parents, whereas toddlers don't. So it's like, it's just no, no two authors, no two experiences alike, just like life. 
Yeah. I will link Mari's information in the show notes. Everybody check her out. She also has a wonderful Twitter feed. I also have to give a shout out to her for one of her projects that she talks about at the very end of the episode, but I want to make sure that everybody knows about it. It's called Cartoonists of Color. She created this database. So anyone out there who is an aspiring writer and you want to find somebody to do the artwork for your show, she created, or for your book, she created a database of people, cartoonists of color in order to highlight people who are trying to get their career off the ground or even established artists. It's just a really fantastic thing that she does with no monetary benefits to herself. It was a service to everyone else. And that is one of the reasons why I absolutely love her. And I love her books. Check them out. Yeah. Like I said, she just cracks me up. They're so funny and they're funny and deep at the same time. And they're very human. She has a fantastic quality of driving that home in her books. So let's talk with Mari Naomi. So Rudy, I kind of screwed up in my email last night. I don't know if you saw it, but I was expecting the book that I was reading by Mari to be mainly queer relationships and it's not, which actually makes the fact that it's banned even more interesting. (laughs) That it's, well, I think that they didn't read it, first of all, but then also I think that they don't like the interracial relationship. Maybe that's it. I don't know. Or the abortion. I don't know. I mean, there's all sorts of things not to like, but I mean, as far as sexual content, like the sex scene, like you don't see anything. It's just like elbows and knees. I mean, (laughs) yeah. Well, let's, uh, well, I'll let Rudy sign up because I just want to dive into this conversation. Oh, no, let's dive in. Yeah. I'm just, I mean, okay. So Mari, I don't even know where to begin because there's the part of me that wants to talk about your process, writing, putting it together, your experiences, but then also this other avenue of book banning and what's going on, the culture. I I don't even know. Go with your heart. (laughs) We can talk about whatever. (laughs) My fear is because your work is so good that I don't want to overshadow it by talking about a cultural situation. Oh, please don't worry. Like, (laughs) all right. Losing the girl. When did you find out? I want to know about that day, that moment when you found out that it was banned and how did you find out? Uh, My friend Yumi in Los Angeles sent me a text, I believe. We text every day. Her boyfriend had seen an article in the LA Times talking about one of my books that got banned. And she said, did you know about this? And I'm like, no. (laughs) It was such a shock for years. I mean, I've been making comics since the 90s. My first published graphic memoir came out more than 10 years ago. And I've been at this for a long time. Uh, In fact, you interviewed me after about that first book that came out. um, And that was came out in 2011. And that was kind of a saucy book about sex. And there are all sorts of things going on. I kind of thought, oh, maybe that'll get banned. I mean, they ban all sorts of books. And there was always this feeling like kind of a jokey feeling like haha you know I'll have made it once my book is banned but when it actually happened it really sucked I was like this isn't great it just made me think of I mean, it was a, so it was, a, it was a school district in Katy, Texas which is something I'd never heard of before and it was some woman who was about my age and it even mentions her name in the article and I, I just, it felt like my feelings were really hurt and it made me feel so sad for any kind of kid who, you know, not because they can read my book, but that they're just banning books with queer content. It made me feel really sad for queer kids who might, you know, or someone who's like not 
out of the closet or just feels really alone, you know, wanting to see themselves in somewhere, you know, in, in a book, in a movie and, and just, and having one less option, you know, having those options taken away from them because of the bigotry of the grownups around them. Like that just made me so sad for them. And then I got super angry <laughs> and I wrote, I made some video where I was, I was just, just shaking mad. And, and I did a little uh, video on, I think it was my first TikTok video where I was talking directly to the woman who got my book banned and said, you know, how would you feel if you got your, um, if you were banned because you're a white woman, like, how would you feel about that? I mean, it's, it's very hurtful and it sucks. Yeah. So that was, that was my initial reaction, but you know, I've, I've definitely, it's been a roller coaster. <laughs> Yeah. So as a result of that, then after you saw that that was banned, then did you see more news come up or anyone else reach out to you? I'm just wondering, what is that like? Well, so there's this, there's this fun thing when you're a personality, when you're, when you're a visible, visible person, um, you become known for the last scandal that involves your name. And so even though I, you know, I contain multitudes and I've written all about all sorts of things. And they're, you know, my first book took me eight years to make. And I, you know, I've put my heart and soul into all these things, but for whatever reason, now I'm known as the, as the banned book author. And um, yes, I'm getting invited to all sorts of panels and new stories and whatever. And I guess it's a, you know, it's a blessing in some ways because, you know, visibility, but also it's not that fun to be known as the band book author. I mean, it's fine. Like I wouldn't have known about Salman Rushdie if he didn't have a hit over his head. And I'm sure he, he would rather that hadn't happened. But yeah, it's, you don't get to choose what you're known for. <laughs> for a while, I was known as, as the person, the cartoonist who got sexually uh, harassed on the panel. So I'm glad that's over with. <laughs> oh my goodness. Can I actually just to tease that out just a little bit and apologies if this sounds ignorant in any way shape or form but there's that old saying of there's no such thing as bad press i mean all there's just press you know that that whole notion of well if you're being talked about whether it's good or bad it'll make other people wonder what happened and let me correlate to that too even though the book was banned did book sales happen to go up as a result of it just curious oh yeah um well so i don't believe in the no such thing as bad press because okay okay Friends who definitely um, were, you know, have no career anymore because they had bad press. Um, that's awful. So, you know, that, that definitely happens. Um, yeah, yeah, that's, and that's, and I'm sorry. And, and, I, and I guess I'm trying to, didn't mean to interrupt you, but I'm trying to stay away from cancel culture. Cause I don't, I mean, I don't see this. I mean, I suppose you were canceled, but this book was canceled or banned in one particular small little segment, but I do think this is way different than cancel culture. So I'm trying to divide the two. Honestly, I don't see that as different than cancel okay. because these are okay. I, the only difference is the verbiage because most of the people who are talking about not everyone but a lot of people who are talking about cancel culture tend to be um, more right leaning. I'm I'm about as left leaning as you can get. I feel like centrists and right leaning people are the ones I hear talking about it a lot. You know, obviously there are people who are not who are talking about it, but like as far as so so what I'm saying is. Um, a lot of the people who talk about cancel culture might be the people who literally canceled my book. Oh. And let, let me let me tease this out one really quick thing. Cancel culture, at least my very ignorant, non-studious understanding of it is somebody did something bad, 
right? Mm-hmm. Somebody did something bad, like whether or not they deserve the punishment that they get being canceled, that's the whole discussion. But something bad happened, some, a, a bad judgment was made, a mistake or, or something, or yeah, I'm, I'm not trying to belittle some of the terrible things that people do, but here you wrote a book, like, like you didn't do anything bad. So I'm trying to, dif- I'm totally trying to well, differentiate that- you. I'm sorry. I, I'm not, I, if I'm not doing a good job, I apologize. Well, that's in the minds of the person who canceled the book. That is, that's the bad thing that I did is I talked about queerness or I, or I tried to normalize it. They're so wrong. They're so wrong. It's ridiculous. So that, that's where I'm trying to differentiate them. <laughs> the funny thing is that there was no, barely any queer content in that first book. It's in, in the first book in a trilogy and part two and three is when the characters kind of come into their gayness and, and, you know, but like that book has almost nothing, almost no queer. Okay, if there was queer content, I don't care. It, it, they're wrong. Period. Yeah. That, that's yeah. that, but but, uh, but did book sales go up? Yes. <laughs> that, I, 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 I'm not. I'm not trying to like prove a point here. I'm. I'm trying to educate myself about this whole thing oh, because. No, absolutely. It's actually. I think this kind of saved my career because I. You know, when this first happened, I was in the middle of thinking of quitting comics. My. Wow. <laughs> Aren't going well, um, especially with a third book in a series. It came out right when the pandemic hit. And with this sort of book, the kids who find these books are generally going to find them in the library. They're not the kind of people who go to bookstores and, you know, who seek out things. So the, you know, the book sales did go up. I don't know that the people who the book is meant for are the ones who are reading it. Yeah, yeah that's, the pro- that's the problem. I mean, that's the problem. That is the problem. Um, it, you know, but on the upside, I mean, for me, like for me personally, aside from my, you know, butthurt feelings, I came out of this really well. Um, all of my books are back in print now. And yeah, sales definitely went up. When this happened, I was basically starting to grieve my career because that third book did horribly because it came out right at the beginning of the pandemic. Like the last place I went before the pandemic hit was my book launch. My first, I ended up canceling the rest of my book tour. And this was before there were really like people had picked up on Zoom. People weren't doing readings. Like, and I'm like, how do I celebrate my book when all these people are dying? Everyone's scared. Like, so basically, yeah. and this is the third book. I'd been working on them for 10 years and I planned on, you know, the first book I did do a book tour and I was celebrating. The second one I didn't because on the third one was when I was going to really punch it up and do the big world tour. And, and really, you know, this is when I was going to really push the books. And so that just died. And as did... You know, I felt the rest of my career. I'm like, well, I guess, you know, um, what, what else can I do? It's been a while. <laughs> Hopefully going to law school wasn't, wasn't something you were thinking about. That's what a lot of people, that's what a lot of people, they do. So I'm trying to talk people out of that. So sorry, Gwen, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, I mean, I think that, you know, like I said, I, I want to also talk about the books themselves because Mari, your work makes me laugh. I mean, it's, I think it's so charming and the, <laughs> just that fever that young people have, like just at the beginning of losing the girl, just the boy passing the note, trying to make jokes and the awkwardness. And it's so relatable and it's just so sweet. And uh, I don't know, I love, so I also was really feeling for the young man at the beginning. Is it Nigel? Yeah. Yeah. You know, just the relationship that he's having with his mom and missing, um, you know, his parents are divorced. I mean, there is, there's so much charm and beauty, I think in your comics, it genuinely uplifts my mood to read it. Oh, 
And so that's one of the reasons why I want to be careful about talking so much about it being banned because I don't want to miss over the, the joy that your work brings. So I guess since you've been doing this for so long or working on it so long, I would really love to know about your process. Do you have an idea of a story or do you sit down with the story and then draw the comic, draw the art? How does that work? Every project is different. The Losing the Girl was my first ever published fiction. Everything else I published was memoir. And I came up with the idea of it while I was trying to sell Kiss and Tell. So it's, you know, 2008, 2009. It's been in the works for a long time. And that's when I came up with a pitch. And the idea for the story came out of something that was happening in my life, but I wasn't really ready to process it yet. I wasn't really ready to talk about it. And it's funny, the book, uh, I eventually became ready to talk about it. And I wrote the book and it's actually coming out this November. Um, I don't know if I sent it to you. It's called I Thought You Loved Me. And it's a memoir collage. Uh, it's, it's really, really weird. But that's the thing. Like every project comes from a different place. The process is different. How I make it is different, um, completely different. And I think that's what keeps me going all these years is I don't get bored. I'm not doing the same old thing again and again. Like I'm just experimenting constantly. So the seed for that was planted when I was trying to get over something someone had done for me, to, to me, my old best friend had betrayed me. And I, and the whole idea was I wanted to get into her shoes and see like, how did, you know, how, how could you betray someone that you really love? Like, or did she really love me? And how did that go? And that's how I came up with the idea of telling each part of the story through a different protagonist's eyes and also drawing it in a style reflective of their personality. Um, so, you know, each chapter's completely different looking and each page is a little different looking depending on how they're feeling about themselves and other people. At the end of it all, all of my books are about relationships. All of my books are about identity, you know, how you see yourself, how you see other, other people. And it's all about compassion and empathy and like, or lack of, I mean, that's all I'm writing about ever. I'm thinking now I'm back to the band part <laughs> because the alternate, because what you are bringing up things like just the anxiety, the flirting, wondering about sexuality, what somebody is attracted to and learning about themselves through that. <sighs> What's the alternative? What kind of love stories are we supposed to be reading? <laughs> That's what I'm thinking. It's like, is it just supposed to be two white straight people forever? Is that is that all the kind of love story? I mean, because when you think about well, well, that is the that is the Adam and Eve story, after all. That is the Adam. Come on, I mean, I'm, come on. I mean, They're yeah. in the Middle East. <laughs> <laughs> there are no white one. people in the Bible. <laughs> I like that. I like that. Being um, from the Middle East, I really like that. <laughs> I mean, I'm thinking about the idea that, you know, discussion about sex before marriage or things like that or understanding it. Um, and with, there's some drugs, there's pregnancy scares. How do you handle this? But there's also like all of this sweetness. It's very real. I guess my rant is that when you look at some of the old musicals, which is something that I used to watch when I was young, that is informing an idea of sexuality. So mm -hmm. something like Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. I don't know if you've seen that musical, but it is. Have you seen it, Mari? When I was a kid, I couldn't yeah. tell you what it's about. <laughs> well, I mean, well, it's unforget. I mean, it's these men live out in the woods and they need wives because they pretty much need servants. And so they go into town and they steal the woman that they want, throw them over their shoulder and bring them back into the woods. And then there is a major snowstorm that has created a block between the town and the woods. And so these men are with all these women. That is crazy as an adult looking back 
and seeing that, but that would not be banned, right? That's supposed to be appropriate and fine because the way in which we understand sexuality in a heteronormative way is without consent and with mm-hmm. dudes just packing up the women and bringing them. And then eventually the women will fall in love with it because that's what women like. So that's my rant. I'm, I'm honestly frustrated because as we're talking, we just have, you know, these bills that are passing about, you know, not making any reference to gender. It's absurd. The lengths that people want to go to, to cut off this description of love that presents itself in many different ways. I'm not familiar with this, uh, getting rid of gender. What, what is that? In Florida, DeSantis just signed into bill that there can be no discussion of gender or sexual orientation. Now it's intended to remove any talk of same-sex couples, but if you take it to mean literally, which is not what they want, they don't, right. They don't want you to not talk about gender. They don't want you to talk about gender that isn't heteronormative, but it doesn't say that in the bill. So I'm just saying, if you wanted to take it to the extreme, then you would have to remove any kind of reference to mom, dad, you'd have to say parent. I don't That's know. funny because as a, a non-binary person, that really appeals to me. I'm like, sure, get rid of gender. <laughs> I'm fine with that. <laughs> you know, what can we, can I ask just for people who are listening, what does non-binary mean? How does that express itself? How does somebody come to that? How do you explain it? What is the elementary version? And then what is, is there a more complicated version? I'm honestly just figuring it out. To me, what it means is when someone asks me how it feels to be a woman, I never felt like a woman. I just feel like me. And and, uh, I mean, I don't feel like a man. I don't like woman is just something that I've been labeled because of the body parts that I was born with. And gender just seems to be, oh, okay, well, women do this, women do that. So, you know, I grew up with this idea of what I was supposed to be, but like it never, it always felt like being in drag or, you know, I, I put on makeup, like I put on makeup for this and it's fun. I enjoy putting on makeup, you know, I do have a fan edge. I, I enjoy things like dresses and makeup, but you know, I'm, I'm also kind of butch sometimes. Like I, I just, I, I'm more gender fluid. I feel like, like David Bowie really spoke to me <laughs> as a kid. And the first time I heard the word gender queer, it felt like a little light bulb had gone up over my head. I'm like, Oh, that's me. You know, that's, you know, like whatever. And so I think when I started really thinking about it is when a friend of mine started transitioning to be a woman and she was saying, you know, I always felt like a woman and I'm just like, God, what does that feel like? And, you know, throughout my life, I've always had this little push like, Oh, you know, does that, and it it never really made me think that I wasn't a woman. It just made me go, well, what does that mean? Um, And so I'm honestly, I'm just still figuring it out, but I really like the idea of, cutting out gender of um, just like, to me, like the idea of the ultimate equaling of, you know, between the genders is just to get rid of it all. And then, yeah, of course, you know, hiring would be more fair, et cetera, et cetera. Like if you, if you can't be equal to women, then just like get rid of gender and let's just be equal to everybody. Of course that doesn't really work. And there's, and there's also a racial, huge racial component and all sorts of things. But like, as far as non-binary goes, that's, that's where I'm at. I, I don't, particularly feel like a man or a woman it just seems so arbitrary like that it's based on genitals so I I choose not to be either but also (laughs) I don't feel like I'm either so so it's kind of a choice I guess but it was a choice for me to basically be in drag my whole life up to a certain point and and follow like 
feminine norms, which, you know, I didn't really feel like I was just told that that's what I would should be doing. And something that you said there that I think is interesting is that when somebody used the word gender queer, that once you had the language, then there was this click. And that's one of the reasons why I think that your work or work in general that has a description of relationships other than heterosexual relationships are so important because it's like you said, the children who are having these feelings, but they don't have the words, mm-hmm. they don't have the language to understand. And that doesn't have to be, you know, for somebody who's really young, that doesn't have to be some sort of a hypersexual language. It can just be um, a word to describe what they are feeling. I think it's not only important for the children who are, let's say, not heterosexual. I mean, there are, there's asexual um, children that are just not understanding this push for physical intimacy. They still desire companionship, but they're not understanding this desire for physical intimacy and then think something's wrong with them because they don't even have the words to describe, oh, this is really a thing. I think it's important for people who are also straight kids. Yeah. It would reduce bullying just by not having books like this just by not talking about it by omission is implying that there's something wrong which is going to screw up a lot of people because I think that like I said there's so much joy in your stuff and I can feel all of that I mean I can I mean I can remember those awkward moments of when you really like somebody and something goes wrong and I just I feel all of it it's it's there's some sort of a nostalgia that I get from looking at your work. Oh, that's great. <laughs> like, um, yeah, absolutely. The whole point of literature to me is to step into someone else's shoes. I mean, that is something that I never had growing up. And, and I do value it now that it's happening more is, you know, diversity on TV and movies, like seeing Asian people, not just, you know, as the Kung Fu side person, like that's huge to me. It's really important, I think, to be able to see yourself in literature and movies and and whatnot. But also to me, that's not exactly the point. The, The point is to see outside of your limited worldview. This is how we learn, you know, if we didn't have you know parents or whatever teaching us things you know we would just be pretty simple we learn from generations we learn from histories we learn from the people around us and and the people who are banning books are specifically not wanting these kids to be able to not be bigots like themselves like that's all i can see when i hear about that stuff i actually just spent some time with some friends who are educators um, in texas to try to i kind of t- told them about this episode and i was preparing for it i was just trying to you know tease things out what, what things are going on there and the conclusion that i kind of came to and we were talking about a bunch of different things we we're talking about kids in the high school and how you know different from when we were in high school because we were in high school very long ago and and, and what, what i yeah i was talking about me and those friends uh not particularly <laughs> you never ages it was um, just yesterday and, for me yeah. What the conclusion that I kind of came to with the book ban was people are, are trying to exercise control in any way, shape or form because of the internet, because of just the information that's out there, just because things are rapidly changing so much to what, you know, the good old days, whatever those were. I mean, the good old days for a certain subset of people, what's one way for people to try to control things? Well, let's, let's ban things. Like if we can get the school board to, if we can rally up the, you know, peanut gallery and get a whole bunch of people scared and look at this stuff that they're putting out there, they're trying to exercise some control over change. And in reality, you can't exercise control. And that's really all what I'm trying to see here is, is people who don't accept the facts of life, which is we truly don't have any control over change. It's sad, but it happens uh, all the time through history. 
This is not going to be the last time that that happens. I mean, before we all transfer our brains into a computer, because that's what I plan on doing, I'm sure there's going to be some people that will ban computers or whatever that is. Like there's always going to be people try to stop the change because they're so scared of it. They're so used to the way things were. I'm not trying to make excuses for them. I mean, I'm not. I'm just trying to explain it to myself. That's how I'm trying to come up with some kind of rational reason. But reality is... They're they're doing more harm to their more people are going to get these books in their hands as they should than they had they not banned it in my opinion that's what I think is going to happen it's just getting it into the right hands for the right people is going to be difficult that's the major issue here do you agree I don't think it's going to be it's good that this is getting so much press right now that banned books are because it's hopefully enraging a lot of people who want their kids or you know other people's kids to be able to access more. Literature. I mean, when I was that age, I was reading very inappropriate things. So, um, so I stuff like my graphic novel, I feel like is pretty tame and benign. But I feel like to be more generous to the book banners, I feel like, and also to Vladimir Putin, I feel like this is all a combination of people going through the pandemic and just being so bored, and also trying to do what they think is right which I do not agree with, but they think, oh, well, homosexuality is wrong. So, you know, obviously to them, homosexuality is wrong. So like, try, you know, to try to tamper that down, oh, those transgender kids, this is all wrong, you know, and then they are honestly trying to do what they think is the right thing. Um, I just very, very much disagree. I don't think that Putin is trying to do the right thing, but I do think that his whole war is because he got really bored and he was probably stuck inside for too long and just, like, oh, God, I'm so bored. I'm going to start a war. I mean, that's what these people in Texas are doing. I'm starting a war. I'm, I'm so bored. Yeah, I, I mean, not to go too down deep into the Putin psyche. I mean, I think there's a lot more there. I mean, I think, I think, he, I mean, he, tr- I think he truly believes in the, um, in, in, you know, Mother Russia and the great, the greatness of Russia. And is real. He's literally trying to get Russia back to, you know, the pre-Bolshevik Empire days. And in his brain, this is the last chance for Russia. Once again, he's trying to exercise some kind of control over something over Ukraine and other countries. Moving on, right? Moving on, moving into the future. And he's wrestling with that, and he's doing terrible actions, much like the book banners. They're trying to exercise control over change. You can't stop change. You can't, period. He doesn't think there's such a thing as a Ukrainian. I think, and so he's just eradicating it. And that's, I mean, that's where I think with the idea of same-sex relationships that would come across in your book, it's as though there's this denial that it even exists. And, you know, even in the beginning of the book, there is a bully character who calls Nigel the the F word. And I, as I was looking at that, I was thinking, this is what happens. (laughs) You are by, by omission. The only way that being gay can be an insult is if we are continually teaching by omission or ignorance, it is wrong. I know that people really do believe that it is wrong. And I think what is scary for them is that the more people are open about it, they're having to, they have to confront their understanding of what a same-sex relationship means. And instead of confronting that understanding, they just want to push it away. But there have been, there have, you know, actually doctors have written about this, that it is a medical issue as well that in areas where you have the strictest laws or anything that's banned, that's gay, anything like that, you have higher rates of depression and suicide. And so this ends up being a medical issue as well. But in Mm -hmm. areas where there's more openness, you just, you don't have that situation. And so that's why I think it's also painful because 
again, the idea of referring to somebody as gay as being an insult is in and of itself speaks volumes to me of the problem. I have a, a, a lot of gay friends, obviously. <laughs> and um, I, I know quite a few, especially men who later came out as gay were bullies when they were kids and they would bully kids who seemed gay because they didn't want to be found out. And I think that's super common. And I, you know, obviously you see in the news all the time uh, about these very far right or very conservative um, religious types who are just doing their hardest to punish, I don't know, pedophiles. And then you find out, oh, they have all this kiddie porn on their computers. Like, I think that's, that's also a pretty common, like just being afraid of something that that's within them. In Kiss and Tell, you have descriptions of same-sex encounters intimacy, abortion, interracial relationships. Well, I guess that that would be with your, with your parents. So why is it relationships interracial for me? Cause I'm half. (laughs) Yeah. Well, so why, why with this book, if this is something that you've done, this is, this is something that has shown up in your work before. Well, that was marketed towards children. I think that's the bit. Oh, okay. This was specifically a young adult book. And all that meant was that my editor took out all the juicy bits and had me dial it back. (laughs) Okay. Okay. So you said at the beginning that you think it's not just the queerness, but as far as interracial relationships, I I mean, that's part of it. I really do. Um, be, just because the same district is also trying to get to get rid of like critical race theory, like, the, you know, I, the more articles I read about what's happening, and they all say different things. So I don't know what's actually happening. But these same districts are trying to ban like they banned a biography about Michelle Obama, because they said she's being racist, because she said something about white people. I don't I don't remember what it was. It was completely benign. I'm like, how is well, first of all, that's she can't be racist against white people, but also, you know, that was ridiculous. Uh, but, you know, they're just looking for anything, anything that they can get their hands on. I don't, I don't know these people. They, they kind of scare me. I was I going to go to Katy, Texas to be on a panel. And I ended up uh, calling in over Zoom because I was too f- afraid of the pandemic. But like when I was actually planning on going, I was really scared of what could happen. And that these people who I, you know, I don't know who they are. They're humans. How bad could they be? But, you know, in my mind, I just, I had dreams about them coming at me with torches. So I was a little worried about going there. It was fine. If nobody, even though I was, uh, I, I zoomed in, but there were other people on the panel and, and nobody got torched. So I, I think that this is important that you say that because I don't think that what is really realized by banning books or saying we're not going to talk about this or some of the racist jokes that had to do with Asian Americans when it came to the pandemic, that that is that a citizen of the country cannot move freely throughout the country, because that is the amount of uh, that it's really instilling fear that people are being injured for existing mm-hmm. um, as a result of all of this built up tension and the jokes. I'm glad that you said that. I think people need to hear that. That it's not just a little thing or just, oh, this is, you know, this is a joke. People act out in that way and are, rest- are you know, causing fear for saying, I don't want to visit this area of the country as a result of that. I, I mean, it's I- kind of always been that way, especially for queer people. When I first went on my first sister spit tour, which was a, a bunch of basically queer authors, and we would go to, from town to town across the country and in Canada, um, there were definitely places where I felt outright hostility from people, 
because we were clearly a band of queer people, you know, it's terrifying. And I, I don't think I would go into some of those places again, like Virginia and, and, and other places like that. I, it was just terrifying unless I could go undercover as a straight white person, which, you know, harder and harder to do. As an Asian person, I definitely, um, I don't want to go anywhere that there aren't any Asian people, even though I understand that even in Asian populated areas, we're still getting hate crimes. It's still, it, it terrifies me. It's on I me. Mean, obviously I'm a, a white woman, but I, my daughter is biracial and it's on my, it's, she's only a little over two, but it has, but it has dawned on me of traveling. I don't, I, you know, I just feel extremely protective of her and, you know, even of her father and this idea of somebody wanting to cause harm just for, just for her existence really terrifies me. And so it's made me rethink different areas of the States in which I would either travel alone, or I don't think that I would, I would be nervous about her being with me. Um, yeah. And that's a shame. We're in the same country, right? That's, that's a shame. Okay. Let's see. I would love to know with your work since, well, I mean, it's, it brings me so much joy. I would love to know if there is a response from maybe somebody young in particular, what is a response or some feedback or something that you've gotten about, it can be any of your books. It can be kiss and tell or losing the girl. Is there something that somebody said that has meant a lot to you? that you remember or like when you're doing a book signing or a talk? I mean, yeah, I, I, I retain like everything, everything everyone says to me about the books, I retain it. Unfortunately, sometimes the bad stuff sticks with me longer than the good stuff. Probably the most meaningful stuff comes from my parents when, you know, when they approve of something that's, I don't want to be that person, but it's true. Like my mom says, you know, gives me a compliment. I'm just like, oh my gosh, during the whole pre-book ban around the time that my book got banned my friend and realtor who has a 11 year old who just came out as bi and is also half Japanese he gave her my books and um, 11 depending on the kid it might be a little too young for my books but depending on the kid like I mean I was probably old enough when I was 11 to read my books um, so I was a little nervous but apparently she's read them like again and again and again. And, you know, every once in a while he sends me a text message, a picture of her, like, oh my God, she's reading the whole series a third time. It's just a picture of her on, on, on the sofa. And I swear I, I cry every time. <laughs> but I don't personally hear from a lot of kids. I don't have a lot of kids in my life and I didn't get the chance to tour with it. So I, you know, I did tour with the first book. And I, I did a, um, a library visit in the Bronx. This was, I guess, 2018. It was a workshop and it was these kids who were clearly there because they were getting a free lunch out of it. And they were just, they, they were these, they were adorable. And I was terrified of them because I'm afraid of children. And um, <laughs> I'll just say it. And uh, they weren't really listening to me. And luckily I had a librarian there who was kind of controlling the whole matter. And I would be like, okay, next to the workshop. And she'd be like, listen up. And like, she'd calm down the kids who are, you know, they're a rowdy bunch. And at the end, um, the librarian mentioned, oh, you know, Mari wrote this book. And I guess they'd all read the books and they didn't realize that I was the author. And suddenly these kids who were so aloof and they were so tough and just, I was so scared of them, like, a bunch of them just like swarmed at me and started hugging me. I'm like, <gasps> it was terrifying and beautiful, like a like killer fish. It was amazing. I just, just, just I, I'll never forget that moment. <laughs> oh my gosh. 
Well, I mean, this is one of the things that I, one of the things I like to do in philosophy or even behind the podcast is ultimately I want to talk about what makes life good, what what makes life enjoyable and what does it mean to live well. And so having you on is just it's just perfect because this is your creativity, your passion. It's inspiring others. I would love to know, but I, I will kind of wrap it up. One of the things that I would love to know is what have you learned about yourself in this creative journey from when you started to where you are now? I don't know if it's because of the art or just because of getting older and wiser, but the older I get and the more art I make, the more I just realize I just want to help other people. And coming from a place, I'm not a nurturing person. I never wanted children. Like, I mean, I guess I'm nurturing towards animals, but like, it's not helping other humans was not really something that I was specifically interested in as a young person. Um, But now I'm just community is becoming so important to me helping people. Like whenever someone tells me that something that I made, made them feel less alone or made them feel safer. I'm like, this is why I'm alive. This is the whole point of it. You know, when I help people get things or be happy, like it just, I mean, that that's what it's all about. I have these databases that I want to bring up the cartoonists of color, queer cartoonists and disabled cartoonists databases. I started them in 2014 and it's a labor of love. I don't make money off of them. And it's just what it sounds like a database of these cartoonists. And, um, and so many people have told me that it helped them get jobs that they were, you know, suddenly visible to editors or, you know, to panels or whatever. And, and that's really nice. And, and even though it's a tedious, tedious thing to, to run databases, like that's, um, but it, it gives me a lot of joy to know that I'm helping people. Uh, like there's something else. Oh yeah. And so recently I did a mural in uh, Southern California. Um, it was actually a number of murals that were about anti-Asian hate where this client just said, we want to make a comics mural that ends racism. Can you help us? And I'm like, sure. The process of making it was really hard. I'm really happy with how it turned out. But what the amazing part of it were the, all the people who came out of the woodworks afterwards, you know, taking selfies and, and just publicly exclaiming how having an anti-hate mural in this park makes them feel safe. There was a little old man who got beat up by a random dude who was, who was yelling um, anti-Asian slurs at him like you beat him up and he spoke at the dedication ceremony of one of the murals and just said I this makes me feel safe again and I'm just I mean I was crying under my mask I mean that's what it's all about is you know I'll link that in the show notes I'll link also your talk that you gave talking about the cartoonists of color and creating those (laughs) databases because it really is great I've mentioned that several times ever since I met you. I think that that's just, I think that's so extraordinary. And even the story and your talk about how you came to it, this, you know, curiosity is, is your work being turned down because you're Japanese or is it because you're a woman or what is it that's going on? And the fact that you created that database is just so cool. I mean, it's just, it's I because I've even toyed around with the idea of doing a little children's book. And I know that I would want to tap into that database to find an artist. So I think that that's really cool. Oh, How many artists, do you know, offhand are logged into that database that I know that there's three different ones. Do you happen to know a ballpark? I don't that number right now. Um, it's in the thousands. Oh, it's so cool. Yeah. Yeah. I will definitely link all of that stuff in the show notes. Please. Okay. Mari. Mari, thank you so much. And oh, I'll yeah. all of your stuff, your books, you. all this stuff. I'm so excited. I'm just so grateful to talk to you. I just, I loved this. 
yeah, I just, I really, like I said, your work brings so much joy. And so I'm happy to, to have the space to talk about that and connect with you. It's so nice to see you again. (laughs) (laughs) Let me know when you're back in LA. (laughs) We'll go to Bon Vivant. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Have a good day, Mari. Take care, Mari. Good is in the details is produced by Dr. Gwendolyn Dolsky and Rudy Salo. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts and you're enjoying the show, scroll down to the bottom and hit that five-star review. Or take a screenshot of your favorite episode and tag us on Instagram, Good is in the Details Pod. And if you'd like to sponsor a show or if you have any questions and want to reach out, you can contact us, Good is in the Details Pod at gmail.com. We're also on Patreon if you want extra content and how to support the show, join our book club. We're at patreon.com slash good is in the details. Okay, until next time. Bye.